Philippians 3. Short letter where Paul's in prison. It's all about joy. And Paul can write about joy in prison. If there's anything that takes joy away from you, remember, Philippians was written in prison. And it's not a nice prison like we have here. (laughs) They didn't even feed you. Um, He's doing okay though. His very first verse, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Do you understand the Lord that way? That you're encouraging other people while you're the one in prison? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it looks so normal. Here's Paul in tattered clothes, wrapped in chains. But inside, he has the joy of the Lord. So much so that it bubbles out of him that he's encouraging others who aren't even wrapped in chains. How beautiful it is. We can lay hold of God this morning to have the same. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I write the same thing to you. It's no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. I'm repeating myself. If you can have joy in your Lord, the Lord, you're safe. Sin, the world, nothing in this world will touch you if you're satisfied in him. It's my, it's my safeguard to give you. Look out for the dogs, he says. Look out for the evildoers. Those Um, those evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he lists his resume. I am circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's all gone. Indeed, I count everything to be lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I seek to lay hold of Jesus, because he has already laid hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. That is, I do not know him fully, and I have not been united to him completely, not yet. But the one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And so here's Paul in his prison letter writing to encourage them. 
writing to encourage them to not think of themselves, to forget yourself. I mean, I, I imagine that would be it. If you ask the question, what could cause someone to be so encouraged and full of joy that they, that they are taking the time to pen these letters such, in the midst of such a terrible situation and having joy overflowing so much that they are spreading it out to others who are in a less precarious situation? That the answer to that, what is causing him to do that, is written into his very letter. That he is saying, I do not look at myself. I really don't care about myself very much. In some way, he was so taken in by the glory of Jesus that Paul is a very self-forgetful person. He has forgotten himself. The, promise, the problem of being introspective, focusing in on ourselves way too much, way too much is that it naturally leads to depression. It's, it's kind of like a stain. If you were to get a stain in your shirt and you have it and you want to remove it, the last thing you need to do to that stain is get in there and start rubbing it. That doesn't help. That doesn't help at all. If you have problems, particularly here in the context of what we're saying of confessing our sin, the last thing you need to do is get all serious about your sin in the sense that you're rubbing it and, and finicking with it and pressing upon it and overthinking it and analyzing it and looking at your life in every angle and every way. That's the last thing we need to do. There is no gospel there. There is no Christ there. All you're doing is taking that little um, stain of sin on your clothes and just weaseling it in and Pressing it in with your thumb to make sure it would just be in this indelible mark upon your conscience and giving you such bitterness and depression and anxiety. And here's Paul. If he were to overanalyze, if he were to overanalyze, you can do this in any circumstance. Maybe you've never been in prison. You can do this in any circumstance in your life. Well, what brought me here? Why am I in prison? Have I done something wrong? Am I under God's judgment? Did he curse me? Is, did I, have I disobeyed him? Why am I never experiencing all these blessings? Why did I get these chains? I'm just trying to preach the gospel. Why is everyone resisting me? Why, 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 why? He could be in that prison overanalyzing himself to death, being a mess, a basket case, having no confidence and no joy at all. And he would have pretty natural reasons to think that way. But instead, he's penning a letter to a bunch of free people to remind them they should have joy in the Lord. And within this part we read is his secret. He doesn't think of himself. He's too mesmerized by Christ. He has seen the glory of Jesus and he's never been the same. One pastor says a person who is addicted to introspection keeps going deeper into his dead dungeon or inspects the same skeletons over and over again. The candle's not very good and light never provides a solution to his awful macabre past. The fascination with the subject matter is never a source of joy, it is a cause of depression. It is probably the primary cause of depression for people with melancholic and perfectionistic personalities. Now, we don't have to raise our hands. You probably know yourself fairly well, and there's a variegated difference between all of us right here now. Some of us could be doing very wrong things and not even be aware of it. And some of us will take something that is barely nothing 
but be so conscientious that you would think it through forever and, and fret yourself away. And here's the warning to those of the latter, that that is not the way to go. See, conviction is good. Conviction plus confession. If you feel convicted, if you feel wrong, if you feel out of step with the ways of Jesus Christ, that's fine. That's good. Invite conviction. Let it take in. And it will sting. It's supposed to sting. Sting plus confession produces cleansing and confidence. If you have conviction, then confess it. You're cleansed and you're confident. You're again bold in the Lord. That you have his pleasure. But that's so different than condemnation. Condemnation mixed with just this putrid introspection of overthinking your life and the circumstances of your existence. Only produces introspection that leads to depression. There's no gospel there. You look at your life with a very dim light. When reality, First John says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. You're not down in the dungeons of your soul with a candlestick looking at all your skeletons from the past. God is light. He comes down into your soul and turns on the switch. And it's all there. And he sees it all. And he cleans it all. And it's done. For God is light, he says. And in him there's no darkness at all. But if we walk in the light and see in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. It's cleansed. It's gone. It's like my basement right now. If I go down there, I look for stuff and we get things, but I don't go down there to do living. It's not finished. I'll go down there with a flashlight to find something I stored. Um, But the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The basement of your sins is his living room. He went down there and turned the light on, put up the drywall, laid down the carpet and a few couches. God is light. And we have fellowship with him there. There's no need to go down and to analyze. Introspection, it takes all of the joy away from our life. It can be deep and depressing. And so now... The point that Paul makes here is actually Paul was not that kind of person. Paul was not that kind of person to overanalyze himself. In fact, he was a little less critical of himself than he should have been. And that's his point. See, there's another type of introspection in which you look at yourself and you actually like what you see. And that could be a problem too. And so here is the reality. You have uh, some people that will look in the mirror and they have a healthy body weight and their skin complexion is great, and they say, I am ugly and overweight. And you just, they just have, they could never, they're just so critical. It's their physical appearance. And then you have some guys, perhaps, they look at themselves, and they're not what they used to be, but when they look in the mirror, they say, I'm still captain of the football team. I still got it. I still look great. Well, there's a spiritual reality to that. That some people look and they think, ah, I got it pretty good. I'm not doing too bad. This is where Paul was at. 
These people are coming to him and they're called the dogs or the evil people, those who mutilate the flesh. What they're trying to do with the Philippian church, right? Paul is even writing this from prison, making an urgent ledger that has to get out even while he's bound, is that they cannot give in to this kind of thinking. What they are trying to do is get the church to evaluate themselves based upon outward appearances. Evaluate themselves based upon their performance. Evaluate themselves based upon their religious duties and how they fulfill them. That is, of course, circumcision and all the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Do this, do this, do this, and God will be pleased with you. And Paul says, do not go down that road. It will destroy you. It will take you away from Jesus. It is a lie. It is not the gospel. You will not have your eyes fixed on Jesus if you entertain these kind of thoughts. These self-evaluative, hypercritical thoughts that are not of God at all. And so Paul speaks anecdotally and says, here was my false confidence. I was the guy who would look in the mirror and think I had it all together. I wasn't the guy that would self-evaluate myself introspectively so much so that I would ruin myself in depression. I would be very introspective because I just liked myself. I liked looking at myself and I had it perfect. I was the guy that thought I still had it going on back when I was in my 20s. I looked at the mirror and I said, wow, that's a good looking guy. And the reality is, it's not. And here's his list. Here's his list. He says, this is what I had. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a real Jew. I really was in the covenant. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, I knew my lineage. I knew where I was from. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. My mother and father were both true Jews. And also, potentially that could mean, I knew Aramaic. I wasn't just a Greek Jew. I wasn't just a Jew that was conquered by Rome and didn't even know the language of our fathers. I was a real Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. So there's Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Bible, didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't hold to a lot of the teachings of Scripture. They were the theological liberals of their day. But Paul said, well, I was an evangelical. I believe the Bible. And I liked that I believed the Bible. And I was better than those guys over there. I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he said, I was a persecutor of the church. And you would think, why would he write that out? Obviously, it's not a good thing. But he's writing to you as he saw himself at that moment when he would look in that mirror. And you have to think, truly, uh, numbers... 25.11, Phineas um, killed a man uh, for doing evil, and God praised him for it. So when Paul goes around persecuting the church, you have to realize how he's seeing himself. He's looking at his big belly, and he says, no, I'm in shape. I got it all together. I'm looking great. No, 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 no. He is a mess, but he's interpreting it wrongly. As to righteousness, he says, and this is the amazing one. He, he has to end this way. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. What? Yes. That's how he viewed himself. He viewed himself by these standards. He lived what he thought was righteous. If you would ask Paul at the moment, he thought he was doing everything right. And he was introspect. He was focused on himself. He was looking at himself and evaluating himself. And he loved what he saw. 
As to righteousness, I was blameless. And then later, one of his, toward his last letters, 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I am the foremost of sinners because I persecuted the church. So he takes the last two things he mentioned. I had zeal because I was a persecutor of the church. And his righteousness, I was blameless. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I'm a sinner. And also, I was murdering people or complicit in murdering of people. So it flipped entirely. He sees himself for who he truly is. Why? Because between those two moments, between him writing this and 1 Timothy 1, there was this understanding of Jesus Christ. Paul's confession is he moves to say this. Now this is his confession. He confesses confesses introspection. He confesses looking at himself. He confesses magnifying his own life. Finding his self-importance, his self-worth. He takes it all and he puts it upon the throne. He lays it at the feet of Jesus. So it's not as though when we talk about confession, that here we have to go into the depths and the basements of our souls to find all of our sins and confess them all out. It's not just our sins. We have to confess all, and most importantly, we have to confess all of our righteousness. We have to confess everything we're proud of. We have to confess everything that we put on our resumes, post on our Facebook, everything we want people to know about us, confess it all as, as scubalon. And you go look up that translation because it means more than just dung. Because here's his confession. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Gain. Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. I suffer all things and I count them as rubbish. Scubalon. For the gain of Christ. Everything he was proud of. Everything he had to his resume. The reason he's resisting these other people that are trying to corrupt the Philippian church, is he says they were giving themselves to the flesh. And, I mean, I would love to preach multiple sermons on the flesh. When he says flesh, of course, he doesn't mean what you pinch when you grab your hand. Paul thinks in two categories. He says there is everything of the flesh, and there is everything of the spirit. And what they are doing is they are loving the flesh. The flesh is everything before Jesus. Everything that had to do with selfish absorption, self-reliance, self-importance, introspection. Everything that you're proud of is in the flesh. Everything that is in the flesh is related to the first Adam. The first man. And everything that came from him. Everybody trying to live their life for themselves is of the flesh. And what is of the Spirit is that Jesus comes in the flesh, dies in the flesh, absorbs the wrath of God in the flesh, swallows every drop in the cup, and then resurrects to everlasting life, and then ascends to the Father, and a short period from then, pours out His Holy Spirit upon His church. 
And what Paul says there is that that is the fulcrum, the pivotal moment in all of human history in which we are now in this age called the age of the Spirit. The time in which the Spirit of God is given in such great measure that it is actually possible to do something since the resurrection of Jesus Christ that no one has ever done before, which is actually be free from thinking of yourself. To not be in the flesh. Because we are always in the flesh. We are always prone to just being self-absorbed, introspect, in the sense that we actually are proud of all of our things and accomplishments and accolades. That is the default human position. It is the catalyst or the, the, the taxonomy of all of human history can go into that bucket. That that is human history, is just the flesh. And then there was the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit to such a degree that it's actually possible. It's actually given to us this great power and authority to be able to pivot, to pivot our eyes off of ourselves, and for the first real time in significance to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and actually for once not be introspective, not be selfish, not be fleshly. And here is Paul saying, do not give in to the flesh. Take no confidence in the flesh. So the question is this, what things would be what is said here, rubbish to you? What things cause you to return to the flesh? If you've laid hold of Jesus, that you find your identity or your pride of position, or your place or honor in something else? What is that that tempts you, that brings you out of step with the Spirit? Think of what it means truly to be in the Spirit. All sins, all things that are of the flesh, are simply coming from this idea that you are, all you're doing in life is just trying to do what you want to do. That's it. That's the source of all sin. And to be freed from all of that is to have the Spirit of God given to you in such a way that is what we said earlier, that we are given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that is hidden in earthen vessels. What does that even mean? So if our outer body is this earthen vessel, and Paul says that you've been given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, this is the treasure that was given to you that is hidden in earthen vessel. Well, back, think that. If your earthen vessel is your body, then where is that treasure? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that happens in your spirit, your inner man. Your outer man is wasting away. It is that earthen vessel that will be cracked and broken in only a few more years. But that inner man, that is, you are in the age of the spirit. God is giving his Holy Spirit to us so that we could actually behold the glory of Jesus in the mind of our eyes, the eyes of our mind. And when that happens, your hands loose. You don't care about stuff. All of a sudden, everything else is just covered in dung. Your best thing on your best day, the most prized accomplishment you've ever had is nothing. Nothing anymore. You stop for the first time looking at yourself and how other people think of you and how you think of other people and evaluating this and looking at that. You're free. You are free to look at Jesus. The glory of God and here's Paul in this prison full of joy. Because there's a revelation of the glory of God given to him in the face of Jesus Christ, which is happening by the Spirit. 
inside of his own person. That it's more than anything else. That even this body may go, Christ Jesus I have, and he holds on. So this confession, confess all of your rubbish. Let us confess that, to not be introspect. But in this is the rub. This is the push of our life. This is the work of what we have now until future glory. Is that we would confess all things. Successful in business. Being beautiful, smart, and strong. We take it all. All these good. Good in their appropriate place. And we throw it and say that is dung. It is nothing. It is nothing except for the fact that I have Jesus. That I identify with Christ. He is my Lord. He is my peace. He is the reason I have joy in any circumstance. I can go through all things through him. He is the one who holds holds my mind. He is the one who will bring back my body. He is the one who will carry me through death and carry me through any trial in this life. He is the most valuable person and relationship and knowledge and accomplishment I've ever had was him saving me. My greatest accomplishment is him saving me. That is my greatest treasure. That is everything. And then to take that and value that means regularly throughout all of our life confessing our righteousness. Confessing it as nothing. And here's Paul's confession that he would lay down all of his righteousness. Now that will only take the rest of our life. And we will have to regularly work at that daily. And so Paul uses the word straining. Now that I have already obtained this, I have not done it perfectly. I have not found the final resurrection. I have not already attained this to become perfect. But I press on. To make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. The beauty of confession. True confession is if you've confessed something, good or bad, sin or your righteous acts. If you've confessed it, you forgot it. So we, we've been talking for the longest time in a series of weeks. Confess your sin and forget your sin. Because God's forgot your sin and move forward. And so the point here this morning is confess every good thing you've ever done and forget about it. And move forward in Christ. Not just your sin. Confess your righteousness. And don't dare boast about it for a minute. And be free. Because you're going to get trapped in looking into yourself. So confessing and forgetting. But this is a push. Notice his words. I press on to do this. I press on to do this. The man is in prison. Do you think he might be wrestling to try to do this? I think. I press on to lay hold of Christ. I press on to not look to the circumstances, but to look to Jesus for my source of joy and completion. I press on. I strive. I forget everything that lies behind. And straining. The word is straining forward. He is pushing forward to lay hold of Jesus. Because he says it is the press on to the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. That is, I am down here wrapped in my chains in this Roman prison. And I am not liking it. But I in my mind lay hold of Christ and his promises through prayer. Where is his scripture then? What is he meditating on? He's laying down on his face before the Lord. And God is revealing his glory to him. And he is, here is the spirit. That you would think most people would in that state be very self-focused. These chains are hurting my wrist. I'm hungry. They don't feed me here. And he just starts thinking about himself, himself, himself. And this is the beauty of the age of the Spirit. To be in the Spirit. As Galatians says, to be walking in step with the Spirit. Is that if you are in the Spirit, you are not thinking about yourself. That's the fundamental thing. If you're in the Spirit, you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about Christ, you're thinking about other people. You're loving God, you're loving others. That means you're in the Spirit. You're actually keeping in step with the Spirit. And notice what he's doing in prison. He's thinking about the Philippians. 
He's in the spirit and he has joy because he doesn't care about his chains or himself. That he would be in this low position thinking of another group of people. The danger of introspection is that it slides into depression. But confession, even confession of our righteousness, frees us to actually have cleansing and confidence. And what follows naturally is joy. Because he's in the spirit in a lower position than them, but thinking for their good. Do you see that that is how the Holy Spirit led Jesus Christ through all of the Gospels? To the wilderness, to the cross, for the joy set before him, he endured and despised the shame for you. He was thinking of you. He wasn't thinking of the nails. So he went through the nails, being led by the Spirit. And therefore, to be in the flesh is nothing more to just think of yourself. Yet this man in prison is thinking of them and has joy. Because we were not made to think of ourselves. Do you understand that Adam and Eve, before they sinned, didn't even know they were naked? It's not until they sinned that they became so aware of themselves that they found shame and became introspect and became focused on them and their food and their clothing. When reality, we don't live by bread, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Before falling into sin, they actually saw and walked with the Lord. It was not till sin entered that they saw their nakedness before they actually saw themselves. We were not made to think of ourselves. We were not made for this. And it is distressing to our souls to go down that road. Do not think of yourself. Be free from yourself and love other people. You'll be full of joy. And I promise by the very nature of these words, the way Paul uses the flesh spirit, if you are thinking of others and loving God, you will be full of the spirit. You will be free. And here is an analogy at the end. Jerry Bridges uh, is a pastor. He wrote a book named, or he's a Christian author, passed away a few years ago, Trusting God. Um, There's a uh, Cecropia moth. And um, it's one of the bigger moths if you've ever seen them. They actually look more like butterflies. They're beautiful. Their wings are colorful. It's not just like the moth you'd see maybe outside tonight. And these moths go in the cocoon. And they're large, and it's a large cocoon. And the story goes that every so often there's somebody who sees them emerging. And naturally, the implication or the the impulse would be to help the moth get out. And so the person cuts, observer sees this, and, and cuts a little bit of the cocoon open to get the moth out. And what happens every time is the second they do that, out of best intentions, if not, is they seal the fate of that moth. That the moth falls out of the cocoon, its wings crimpled and shriveled, never to fly. And it will crawl for a few more days and die. The way God made it to happen is that it should be very, very difficult for that moth to get out of the cocoon. It's a very hard cocoon. And many hours of its uh, first life out of the cocoon will just be simply fighting to get out. Striving to get out. But what that striving and fight does is it pushes all the fluid of the animal to the wings. And expands the wings and strengthens the wings. So that when they do fight to get out of the cocoon, their wings are in a developmental state. That the second they are free... They are ready to fly immediately. To prematurely cut the animal from 
leaves its wings to be like raisins on the floor as it crawls around for a few more hours to die. We were meant to strive against the flesh. That is our cocoon. We have this treasure in earth and vessel. That Jesus Christ, the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, given to us by the Spirit, and yet we must resist everything around us. Even our own impulses and this world. And we must resist and strive, as Paul says, striving regularly to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And that striving is essential. That striving is necessary. See, the caterpillar is passively receiving regeneration. Inside that cocoon, God, in his absolute providence, the, the, the animal's not doing anything. It's receiving transformation. It's receiving metamorphosis and recreation. But then to get out, you may be recreated in Christ, but the rest of our life is strengthening our wings through resisting the flesh and walking in the Spirit. Resisting the flesh and walking in the Spirit. And the next day, resisting the flesh to walk in the Spirit. To train yourself to get your eyes off yourself and every successive year to be less focused on yourself and more focused on people and less focused on yourself and more focused on Christ. And to train your wings to do that because there is the prize you need to be able to fly. There is the prize, notice the phrase, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is a day, 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, the cocoon is going down, the inner self is being renewed and strengthened day by day. You are learning to walk in the Spirit. You are learning to die like Jesus, to die to yourself, to consider yourself nothing. Now all your righteousness is nothing but filthy rags and dung. You learn that our inner self is being renewed day by day. That we would lay hold of Jesus by keeping in step with the Spirit, by confessing all of our righteousness. This is what we're called to. So as we do that, let's pray as we confess Jesus this morning through communion. Dear Father, Lord, we confess all of our righteous deeds upon you this morning, Lord. Everything that we're proud of, everything that we hold dear to our own identity, that it is nothing and it pales in nothing in comparison to your Son. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us as a church, as individuals, Lord, that we would be able to strive, to resist the flesh, to resist so that we would walk in the Spirit, that we would have our minds filled with your Spirit, that we would be other-focused, that we would have joy by forgetting ourselves. Lord, we ask you to do this, especially now, as we make a point to fix upon your Son and the table he's given us. In Jesus' name.